Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Girls tend to outperform at every age and stage, but where they tend to underperform is in the world of work. The barrier that we obviously need to fix is is childcare. If we could put in better support systems, both financial and uh, you know actual, between the years of one and three, I think it would be an, an enormous support mm-hmm. in getting women back into the workplace. You're listening to the Elevate podcast a series designed to explore ideas, teachings, and thoughts on empowering young girls and celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor. I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions of girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for vulnerable young girls, signifies. My guest today is a man with extraordinary presence of serenity and calm. He's a visionary and an enthusiast. He's incredibly committed to driving girls' education in a forward-thinking, innovative approach, ensuring that the girls he works with learn without limits. He is a father of two adorable young boys, a keen cyclist, and a soul who is wonderfully reflective and amazes me with his willpower, attending silent retreats in ashrams around the globe. Captivating, full of wit and ironic British humour, famously engages with adults and students alike with his kind and magnetic warmth. Often busy with introducing and organising some groundbreaking initiatives for girls' education, he can sometimes turn his gentle manner to a much tougher persona as a panel judge in Dragon's Den-style competitions to whet girls' appetites for an entrepreneurial approach to their careers in the future. If you cannot tell already, I'm a huge fan, not only of the inspiring work he has been doing for girls in education as Deputy Director of the Girls' Day School Trust in the UK, but also for his immaculate, pristine and fashionable dress sense. You will never find him in loungewear, that's for sure. I admire his love for the arts. He has the ability to wordsmith even the simplest of statements to come out sounding like poetry. You can imagine how much angst one has submitting school reports to him. Myself included. I quote, the girls will make their mark on the world in their own way and on their own terms. I love this. It aligns with so much of what Elevate stands for. A compassionate educator who I once referred to as one of my bosses when he was the deputy head at the school we worked at. And today, I am so proud to call my friend. I would like to extend a very, very warm welcome to Will Waring. Thank you so much for agreeing to be my guest today, Will. And thank you for such a kind and over-generous introduction, Ramita. Oh, it's true. It's really true. I think... uh, you are one of the greats and it's been such a it's been so nice to to have you on the, on the podcast uh, all I can say is that I'm blushing oh fantastic well that's the goal the goal is to get you blushing I'm glad I've achieved that tick podcast success um I wanted to ask you how you are and how you're finding this very surreal time of in the global pandemic in the first place how are you and the family coping I think it goes through phases and you continually mine different ways of adapting and changing and altering your own circumstances to make them as as beneficial as you can. And of course, I think that you go through enormous 
changes in mood and attitude uh, in that. So to begin with, in lockdown, it was extraordinarily nice to have lunch with my family occasionally. I don't think I've I've done that in, in you know in a weekday in years, and that close contact felt very special. But so soon I missed the the hub uh, the. Hu- the contact of an office, the the, the casual uh, meetings, and on a personal level, I felt that I missed um, adult contact that wasn't very close friend or family, and I realised how much I personally gain from just seeing people around the office. Yeah, I can completely relate to that. Having company and seeking comfort in other adults is so important and it makes me wonder if that's how we feel as adults how must the poor kids be feeling particularly those in the teen brackets who most definitely crave their friends company more than they do their parents or their family in many cases so yeah my heart definitely went out to those kids that were being homeschooled or the indeed the university lot that haven't been able to socialize with their peers if you read the headlines, you could think that all you know, children are in a terrible place, but that's just not the case, or that's not our uh, experience um, in schools. Yes, we're more aware of, yes, there are more cases of, but the most girls are really, really enjoying it. Uh, I mean, I don't think... I don't think they massively enjoyed the summer term. I think what we're hearing from schools is that the girls are just so thrilled to be back in school, even with masks in corridors or Mm. even with a slightly different regime. Mm. It's just so much better Mm. being together. Oh, that's reassuring to know. And I'm pleased to hear that you're finding them to be in good spirits, as we do find ourselves in such worrying times. You and I met during our time working at a selective academic girls' school in London. Uh, you were the deputy head of the school then. And since then, whilst you're still very heavily, if not more, crucially involved in education, you have switched gears a little bit. And I wondered for any of our listeners who may not be based in the UK, you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit more than I did in the introduction about what you do now. As deputy director, education of the trust, I'm really focused on improving and augmenting the girls' education in all of our uh, schools um, so that it can be the best uh, it possibly can be and that those girls um, come out and make the, uh, they're their best possible selves and make the best impact on society. And what I think that that really boils down to is trying to do things in new ways and uh, adaptive and relevant ways. So we run uh, innovation uh, pilots of one sort or another. And then really paying attention to um, the training of our teachers and, and our leaders. And then finally, to making sure that our, our learning environments or our classrooms and the whole built environment of the school is a positive experience for the girls. And what are examples of the projects and initiatives that you've been taking? Are you able to share those with us? We've just completed a couple of projects which I have really loved because you could walk into a lot of schools and be forgiven for thinking that the classroom environment hadn't really changed much in in, in 150 years. Mm-hmm. And what we set out to do at one of our schools is to, is to really fundamentally um, 
alter the experience of walking into a, a room and being in that room. So instead of having pre, pre-current uh, circumstances, we, we tried to take out the whole idea of having tables and chairs in rows facing the front and to get a sense of fun in the classroom. So seating that looked really almost like a playground. So uh, uh, amphitheatre seating that girls could stand on, run up and down, jump off, uh, write on their books, standing against, sit against, make their own little special, you know, uh, zones of focus and attention. Um, And where we did have um, a prompt that the teachers could use, it was a massive video wall. So really good fun. And we put sofas in the the room. I've always wondered why, you know, a classroom can't be more like a living room. And I think we wanted girls to have that sense that they could sit on the floor, they could stand uh, and work at um, standing height tables, that the environment itself would give them agency in their learning so that they could take control of where they wanted to learn uh, best. And one of the best moments of my last year was seeing girls sort of inhabit this room and use it in ways that I hadn't thought of and just enjoy it so much. How fantastic and liberating. They must have loved that. I mean, it just sounds ideal. Don't know how many times I often wonder when children are actually expected to sit crisscross um, in life outside of the six hours that they spent in primary school. So I did, it's, it's quite an extraordinary thing to try and free children up to feel comfortable. And I, think, and I think you hit the nail on the head there. We expect children to sit for quite long periods of time, typically. And so I think the best thing I did at the Trust was try and improve the chairs so that um, you could actually fidget in place and your body could naturally move so that you didn't have the sense of wanting to tip back on a four-point chair, you know, the chair actually allowed you to make micro-adjustments in situ. Yeah, that's um, genius. Genius. We need more people to think like you, I think, in in schools. I think it makes such a difference. Working with girls, obviously, and working with girls has been a real new sort of passion of mine with, with the project I've taken on. In your view, are there disadvantages to girls in education? And if so, what do you think they are? I'm not sure I completely understand uh, the question because what is it, if you think about what a disadvantage is to a girl in education, I mean, you would think, uh, are they being taught in a different way or um, is, there, is there anything inherently stacked uh, against them? And I think we know from a societal perspective that there is lots still stacked against women progressing in um, their chosen uh, careers. Right. But I hope that in our girls-only schools that we can really tailor our teaching and our, you know, our, our teaching, our curriculum, uh, and our environment so that it's it, it works for girls rather than against them. The stigmas about girls in education are you know are, are still prevalent that um, that girls are, are good in some way and uh, compliant and that girls in co-educational schools um, improve the boys that's probably you know 
true in some regards. I think there's some studies that have been done that boys' academic performance improves exponentially with the number of girls in the room. So, um, for my own boys, I'd want them to be surrounded by girls. Um, But I think that um, girls don't always perform to their best in that kind of environment. And I think that single-sex schools or girls-only schools really allow girls to be themselves. And I think that if you walk into girls' schools and co-ed schools and boys' schools, you get a very different sense of the atmosphere in the classroom. And at their best, girls' schools really give you the sense that those girls can be anything and that all the role models in the school and all the leadership positions are taken by girls who are an indomitable force and I think that that's wonderful to see and you can only look at Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand and wish that we had more empathic um, uh, powerful world leaders uh, at the moment who are female. Yes I have to agree she is absolutely remarkable And I don't think we're alone in admiring her for her incredible leadership and wonderful role modeling for young girls. And I'd love love to say that she was a a GDST girl, but um, I hope that we have, we, you know, nurture others who go on to be global leaders. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's a really great hope to have. And I, I, I champion you all the way to that. I also wonder, there seems to be an overwhelming sense of parental consensus, it seems, or out there at the moment that girls are faced with a lot of new types of immense pressure in their early teen years maybe even more so than about a generation ago. I don't know if you get the sense that this is indeed a growing concern or if it's always been there sort of as an undercurrent and we just haven't really spoken about it as openly as people are now or if you think that actually, no, there's new pressures that are building and and girls are under a lot more pressure now. I think it's an extremely interesting question because the obvious difference is um, social media and the way that children are interacting with each other. We've worked with a group called Digital Awareness UK here in Britain and I think that their emphasis is very much on how wonderful social media are as as well as uh, detrimental in some in some cases and We have these wonderful new tools and um, ways in which we can connect, but they have to be used uh, advisedly. So yes, I think there is a different environment to the one that we had as little as uh, 10 years ago, and that that might, in some cases, magnify pressure on girls. But when I go around our schools, I see girls that are thriving as well as in this environment girls can flourish uh, as well as have new challenges mm. rather mm. sitting on the fence no i get it i, I see i see the benefits and, and the difficulties around social media for sure I, I wonder if you feel that the girls that are thriving and flourishing in this new in these environments is it because they have a greater sense of regulation around usage of social media or they have a greater sense of responsibility or do you think there is some sort of advice we could give to parents about how they might help girls cope with the pressures of today's social media presence. <laughs> you, you want children to have independence and to be free to explore various areas themselves, but also you want to maintain uh, you know, a sense of security. And so I suppose if parents 
could really work with their children to understand that they're there to help or in what, in what circumstances that they really should come and talk to a parent. And I think that you've got to be very alive to you know, signs of change in your child and all the normal things that you would be sort of monitoring on a daily um, basis. But I think that as, as with sort of screen usage, it depends how you do it. So if, if a child, even from a young age, is using a lot, is having a lot of screen time completely independently, I think that that's a bit isolating. But if uh, you're watching Disney movies with your children or you're watching whatever media it is together and it's a communal experience, then that gives a slightly different flavour um, uh, to the experience with the, with the child. But I, I guess, and I guess it depends, you know, exactly what ages uh, we're talking about, really. The Elevate podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you like what you hear, please make sure you subscribe and spread the word. You can find us on Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Speaking of girls, and, and maybe it's down to environments and, and what you're saying in terms of having single-sex schools, I wondered if you felt, um, because I've mostly taught in co-ed schools, if you felt girls are much more self-critical and, and prone to setting very high standards, almost unrealistic standards and expectations of themselves. Um, and if so, where do you think this comes from? I, I, I sort of think this question might be linked to social media, but I don't know entirely in your experience if that's what you would find. And if there's something educators um, and school teachers could be doing to help alleviate some of this very remarkably high pressure that they put on themselves. Um, I don't think it's just current. Uh, I think that um, you could identify girls with perfectionist tendencies well before the advent of social media. I'm reminded of something our previous chief executive said, Helen Fraser, which is that girls have got to learn to be their, in, their own inner cheerleader rather than their own inner critic. And there, there might be a tendency to um, criticise in some girls, but not all girls. But I think that if you can get into the habit of... Being, being, being a bit easier on yourself and doing that via all kinds of means. We, we have a program called The Positive uh, Project that we, that we run with all girls and with many of our staff in, in which we try and increase emotional intelligence really by tools such as an emotional barometer that lets you identify how you're feeling and what the potential triggers are and just really increasing a sense of self understanding in this area, I think is, is um, very helpful in not being overly critical. Our schools, you know, know that perfectionism is a, 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 an issue with girls and run very headline kind of events like anti-perfectionism uh, week um, and failure week, as in you know, just trying to get out of your comfort zone, try something different. You know, neatness is not a goal in any way. Try and be more expressive in that sort of sense. So we can tackle it head on, but actually it's, it's a subtle issue as well. Yeah, and one that probably needs a lot of reflection from inside. But I think what you said is really crucial in terms of building innate tools, the ability to talk to your inner self and, and have those, you know, have a communi conversation or 
being able to communicate with your inner critic or your inner cheerleader and, and, and struggling with the sort of the two voices. I said, I said, I read recently somewhere about the increasing number of girls whose greatest aspirations is to become a millionaire by the time they're 22, sort of emulate the su- success people like Kylie or, or Kendall or Chloe Jenner. I don't know exactly which Kardashian sister that the article re- was referring to. But then that sort of pressure to be a millionaire by using whatever tools they think they can to become an influencer of some sort so that they, you, it just was a little bit worrying. So, and I started to wonder how much of that's why one of the reasons I asked if it was linked to social media, but I think you've raised a really good sort of an eye opening point for me that actually perfectionism has existed in women for centuries almost, and, and probably something that's always been embedded in their psyche. And I think that in this regard, uh, the attitude and role of parents is absolutely central because everything that they reinforce in their daughters, you know, will have some sort of bearing on the the attitudes of, um, you know, the attitude of that child. So if they're constantly praised for high achievement rather than effort, or if they're constantly praised for the appearance of their work or for handwriting or for more superficial uh, elements, then that might then that might have uh, a colliery somewhere uh, else. But you don't want to be too hard on yourself as a parent either. It's really jolly hard being a parent, um, <laughs> yeah. and naturally you want you want to be encouraging and to to help um, your children feel valued. Being valued is, is crucial and, and being seen is important for who they are. Reassuringly, there seems to be a much more increased awareness around the mental health of young people, particularly, I suppose, in this worrying time of uncertainty. Mental health is being addressed so much more openly. And I think there is a perception or a belief that girls are particularly more vulnerable in their pre-adolescent stage and their sort of teenage stage to have fragile mental health. Would you agree with that statement? I think that you, I, I, I should add that I don't, I'm not a parent of a teenage girl, so I haven't gone through this myself. But as a teacher of teenage girls, I think that you're using all of your intuition, really, to understand where that uh, child is. And you kind of know if something is up. So I think you just need to really observe and support and let them be themselves, but know that there is help let them know that there is help there. And I also, again, I have this sense that when I walk around our schools and when I talk to the young girls there, I'm, I'm always impressed at how positive and vibrant and excited about life they are. So I think it's brilliant that we've got a, an additional and heightened focus on mental health, but I don't want to over-pathologize either. I, th- I think there's a balance to be run there. You want to support those who are genuinely suffering and support those who are, who are flourishing. Yeah, no, I think I think that's really nice to hear it as someone in, in your position who works with lots of girls and not just seeing the, the, the daughter that you're raising, perhaps, um, that the general picture is che- is pretty cheery on, on, on many fronts. But of course, that's not undermining those kids that do genuinely have, have concerns um, to think about. I just, I think it's nice that it, this taboo conversations around mental health don't seem to be so, so hush-hush anymore. They seem to be happening a lot more openly. But I think there is also a a slight danger creating 
a little bit of drama sometimes when when something is is not happening in the way that they want and it becomes you know more than it needs to be so i think you're right knowing your child is a, is a really big thing but i wonder if educators and teachers can spot signs of this change in a more astute more accurate way than parents can just because they spend so much more time with the children yeah they'll just have another lens won't they and to that end you know train really good training of teachers and heads of year and pastoral tutors is also so important in um in being able to support the girls and identify when one of them is um struggling with something or another and just having the sort of the vocabulary and um you know the emotional resilience oneself as an adult to 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 have um sensitive uh, discussions um, and that's certainly something that we try and make uh, absolutely current in the schools is having mental health we, we run courses on mental health uh, first aid um, the positive project that i mentioned earlier i think gives our equips teachers and pupils with the same kind of language with which to discuss issues with each other um, and i think you just you increase the you increase increase the bandwidth of the channels of communication and then hopefully you pick up anything um, that can be that that needs some um, support yeah these initiatives sound really fabulous if parents did want to find out more information about the things that are happening at the trust would they just log on to the website yeah, yes absolutely have a look at the website or look up organizations like the positive group or mental health first aid is, is an organization by itself as well okay yeah that sounds great i think that would be really a nice resource for parents to have right i think it's time to ask you a question that's probably impossible to answer but i'm going to ask it anyway what do you think the barriers to girls' success are? Success means uh, and is defined uh, very varyingly, person, parent to parent, and teacher to teacher. And then I think girls define their definition of success, especially in that pre-teen age, very differently as well. But when you put your educator hat on and you look at a child at your schools, what, what defines a successful girl to you? If you think, if you look at um, public examination results uh, in England, mm -hmm. girls tend to outperform at every age and stage. So you could say that girls have generally, you know, won <laughs> the the um, the academic um, outcome kind of battle. Um, but where they tend to underperform is. In the, in the world of work. And that's as, as demonstrable in gender pay gap and career trajectories. So what I increasingly think is that it's all, it's all about confidence. And in the way our current educational system is structured, girls clearly are enormously capable uh, of uh, you know gaining all the medals or all the, the trophies that they might want but the question really is in doing so is there any sense of compliance 
or sticking to the rules, that there's then an inhibitor in the workplace uh, in terms of success. And I think that one wants to tread a fine line between retaining all of that, um, you know, you could almost say the superficial sort of facets of academic success, and at the same time building all the confidence and interpersonal skills that potentially lead to more workplace success. Really, and again, it comes down to what you uh, count uh, as success. I would be, I would be so happy if our girls left with a sense of optimism about what they could do, and not thinking that they could go out in a very sort of arrogant way and you know take on the world, but that they could go out and they would be interested with what they found, and that they felt that they had something to, to contribute. That's a really nice vision to have but I suppose the frustration lies in the things that you've just said academically they're outperforming at every stage and yet when they get into the workplace that doesn't balance out I can imagine feeling almost demoralized as a female who's worked so hard to get where, where they are and then have things like pay gap get in the way or wanting to have a family or things like that so I suppose this is a, a longer thing to think about in terms of how it affects the work-life balance and, and and what kids think what they should and should do when they're studying at school. Yeah, I mean, I think that the barrier that we obviously need to fix is is childcare. Mm -hmm. And if we could put in better support systems, both financial and, uh, you know, actual, between the years of one and three, I think it would be an an enormous support Mm -hmm. in getting women back into the workplace. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. It's it's absolutely shocking and it's just so vital, I think. it's. Um, I hope we can get that fixed and sorted soon for, for women. I really do. And finally, Will, I wanted to end on something that I know resonates with you and I've done a little bit of reading up on as well and it seems so interesting. I thought it would be great to touch base with you on the Japanese thought uh, and I'm going to say it incorrectly, I'm sure. So I apologize in advance. Ikigai, which um, I'm going to let, I'm going to explain a little bit more and then ask you, Will, to possibly share how you might use the thinking behind it to guide and shape your decisions or it, how it might reflect on some of the choices that you make uh, as an educator or in your career. I wouldn't venture a better pronunciation than that. Very good. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the translation for you listeners is it's a reason for being, the happiness of always being busy. This is a really empowering message. And I think it's described in a diagram that, I, that I've seen of four major ideas around passion, mission, profession, and vocation, all overlapping and extending into, what, into doing what you love, what you are good at, and what the world needs and what you can be paid for with the Japanese notion of ikigai sitting in the middle. Apologies to any Japanese listeners if I'm pronouncing this terribly wrong. Um, sitting in the middle or, or the heart of it all. I, I really loved this, Will, and I wondered if you could explain your thoughts on it and how it might relate to girls and just their presence in, in education and what we've just said about how they become women from being girls and, and, and going out into the work world. I think for me, it's finding a sense of alignment. So if you're able to identify the things that you're really passionate about and that you want to deepen your understanding of um, and 
explore all the skills and uh, areas around, then the rest kind of falls into place. So you can never, you can never really pretend to be something that you're not. And the body does not lie, as they say. Um, you know, if you're, if you're happily engaged in something, I think it emanates from every pore. And, and thus you don't have to, I don't think you have to worry terribly about going out and doing good in the world. Because if you find something that you're really engaged in and love, then you are doing good in the world. And all the people that you come into contact with will be lifted by meeting someone who has got some sort of inner, inner truth and integrity in what they're doing. And I would say that, you know, I mean, I thoroughly love education and girls' education. Um, but, but, you know, it's not like, it's, this isn't an easy thing that you can find. And... Um, you know, it takes real application. And you think of uh, craftspeople around the world, um, you, you know, whose dedication results in not only beautiful things or uh, objects, but in a sort of way of being that uh, is very admirable. And so I suppose that's my, you know, that's my gentle aspiration is to be um, a, a craftsperson in the educational sphere and just to try and um, open up that sense of possibility for others and that sense of real enjoyment and love of learning. Oh, what an absolutely uplifting thought to well, almost end our interview on. But I, I just think that's such a wonderful thing to think about. And I think it's lovely because it's also sort of talks about authenticity, which is sort of a buzzword I feel like going on at the moment and um, really understanding your altruistic self or whether or not you need to be something who's doing or someone who, who needs to be doing good for the world. But I love what you've just said about the fact that you are doing good if you are in yourself a very well-balanced, happy energy source for lots of people that you come in contact with. So Thank you for being so in, enlightening. I mean, I'm not surprised. I always find conversations with you enlightening. And I do uh, feel grateful that we've got people like you in the wonderful work of girls' education and everything you're doing to support girls to be the best versions of themselves that they can be. Oh, well, thank you, Ramita. I've loved talking to you. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much again for your time. And um, once again, if anyone wanted to get into get more information on what Will is doing, the Girls Day School Trust website, best place to go to. Thank you so much, Will, for joining me. And I wish you all the very best with the projects that you've got going on. Thank you very much, Ramita. Such a delight to have Will on the show today and hear about all the exciting things that he's doing for girls in education. I hope you all enjoyed that. I'd like to give a very big thank you to our audio engineer for helping me bring the podcast to all of you. A big thanks to you, Duncan McPherson. I hope all of you will share, rate and review the podcast so we can spread awareness. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Until next time.